Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hi there, it's Alan Cross, and for the next few weeks of the ongoing history of new music podcast, we're going back to revisit a series we did a little while ago called 100 Weird Things About New Rock. This is a 10-part series, and it explored a lot of topics, with each episode dealing with a particular brand of weirdness. Sex, the law, drugs, strange recordings, excess, road stories, bad behavior, and more. There's a lot that goes into the music that we don't always hear about, despite what you may hear on the internet. So it's kind of like my job to fill you in. You ready for some weirdness? Okay, but don't say I didn't warn you. I think we take music for granted. As much as we might love it, we also treat it like it's something um, disposable. And I don't think we can be blamed for it entirely. I mean, there's just so much music out there. There's a never-ending supply. We hear a song, we evaluate it, sometimes in less than three seconds or something, and then we either accept or reject the song. And if we accept it, we'll listen to it only until something better comes along. We seldom stop to think about all the effort, all the time, the inspiration, the emotion, the skill, the technology, and the money that went into creating that one song. While music can be written and created anywhere, you need a recording studio to preserve it, to put it into a form which can be duplicated and then distributed to the world so we, the fans, can finally get to hear it. And recording studios can be weird places, confining, windowless rooms where time seems to lose all meaning. It's kind of like a Las Vegas casino. Yet the goal within a recording studio is to capture the energy of a live performance. So in other words... There's a lot that can happen between the time a songwriter feels that creative flash and when we finally get to hear the end result. And yes, it can get very, very weird along the way. This is part six of 100 Weird Things About New Rock. I call this episode Studio Stories. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the sixth episode in our look at the weirdness that has infected new rock and alternative music over the years. And this time, we're going to focus on the recording studio and the art of songwriting and some of the odd stories that have come out over the years. Now, let's ease into things with this track from the Foo Fighters. It's a tiny songwriting and recording oddity that has bothered some Foo Fighters fans ever since the Color and the Shape album came out in the spring of 1997. Now, I want you to pay close attention to the part of the song where you have all the whispering. It comes in about the three-minute mark. Here's Dave Grohl on the Foo Fighters with Everlong. The Foo Fighters with Everlong. Okay. What is Dave Grohl whispering about? Is that some kind of hidden message? Well, sorry to disappoint you, but the answer is no. See, Dave wanted to create some creepy mystery for that part of the song, so he had producer Gil Norton record him whispering three different things. On the first pass through, he read from some kind of love letter. On the second pass, he's reading from a technical manual. And on the third, he reads a story that involves one of the technicians who was working in the studio that day and they layered it all over top of each other. So don't feel bad if you can't decipher any of it. It's all mixed in such a way that it's impossible to make anything out. And you wouldn't want to anyway, because whatever Dave said 
is actually completely meaningless. It sounds cool, but it has no meaning whatsoever. Weird item number two has to do with the supposed origin of the Clash's punk anthem, Rock the Casbah. Topper Heaton, the band's drummer, is the guy who came up with the piano boogie that forms the basis of the song. The lyrics came courtesy of Joe Strummer. But this is where it gets interesting. Joe came up with the words after he heard a news report about how people in Iran were sentenced to flogging just for owning a rock album. But that may only be part of the story. In 1981, The Clash played a show in Paris. And afterwards, an Algerian singer-songwriter named Rashid Taha came up to Joe. He was the leader of a French-Arab punk band called Residence Permit, and he handed Joe a cassette demo of his stuff. Now, Rashid says he never heard back from Joe, but a year later, he turned on the radio and heard this song called Rock the Casbah, which stylistically, anyway, sounds like a lot of the stuff that he gave Joe on that demo cassette. Was Rock the Casbah inspired by what was handed to Joe on the sidewalk that night in Paris? Well, maybe. But whatever the case, Rashid went on to have success on his own. And he never seemed bitter in any way because he even recorded his own version of Rock the Casbah. Rashid Taha, the Algerian singer who may have inspired the Clash to create Rock the Casbah. Weird item number three is probably the best excuse I've ever heard for not meeting a deadline. Now, writer's block can be a terrible, terrible thing. You have a deadline and everybody expecting big, big things from you, yet you keep coming up dry. Creativity has abandoned you. And for an artist, this is the worst possible thing that can happen. Just ask Tom York of Radiohead. In 2005, he knew that everyone was relying on him to get things going because, after all, he's not only the group's front person, he's also the driving force behind most Radiohead songs. But in the spring of 2005, he was completely blocked. Nothing was coming. Why? Um, global warming. Tom admitted that he was having trouble writing anything because he was suffering from panic attacks prompted by his fears over global warming. Let me give you a quote from a BBC interview. This was something that was obsessing me and creating a writer's block. To get involved and get stuck in, get the proper information about what was going on has really helped to be presented with a sane solution to what seems like a problem that's insurmountable. Purely selfishly, it's extremely useful. I can get on with my work now. Well, it obviously took a little while to get through everything because it took until October the 10th of 2007, more than two years later, before we saw a new Radiohead album. Extreme weather, the disappearance of the polar bears, and delays getting new Radiohead music. You can blame it all on global warming. Radiohead, from their infamous direct-to-the-public album, In Rainbows, from the fall of 2007. It was the first Radiohead album since July of 2003, a gap of four and a half years. Now, speaking of missing albums, this would be a good time to talk about the album that Green Day misplaced. This is Weird Studio Story number four. By 2002, Green Day was in trouble. Their career had hit the skids. 
All that kept them going was a greatest hits record and a collection of B-sides and rarities. If they were going to continue as a band, they needed a hit and a big one. So they went into the studio and recorded an album that they were going to call Cigarettes and Valentines. Now, the story goes that the album was nearly finished when one day the master tapes just disappeared. They vanished, gone without a trace, stolen, apparently, by persons unknown. So, with no choice, the band started over and ended up creating the American Idiot album. They sold a billion records, and the rest is history. But here's the question. Was there ever really an album called Cigarettes and Valentines? I mean, could a band as experienced as Green Day really screw up this bad and let something disappear? I mean, this is a major artist on a major record label. Now, Billy Joe Armstrong says that the record contains some good, solid stuff. He says it existed. Bass player Mike Durnt is adamant that there were backup tapes, but they weren't as good as the originals. I'm not really sure what that means. And several other people insist that demos do exist. All right, then. So why hasn't this lost Green Day album leaked out anywhere? I mean, this is something that could be sold to some unscrupulous pirate somewhere in Malaysia or Indonesia, and they could churn out bootlegs by the millions. Heck, forget that. Why hasn't Cigarettes and Valentines turned up anywhere on the Internet? So far, nothing. Or is there? On September the 30th of 2003, a record called Money Money 2020 was quietly released on a label called Adeline. It was credited to a group called The Network. This group consisted of Fink, Van Gogh, and Captain Underpants. And they were joined by two others, Snoo and Z. Everyone wore disguises, so their identities were cloaked. There were those who suggested at the time that this whole thing was a collaboration between Green Day and members of the band Devo. Meanwhile, rumors of a feud surfaced that pitted the network against Green Day. There was even footage of a press conference that exploded when the name Green Day was mentioned. And let's go back just a little bit. When Green Day was allegedly working on demos for Cigarettes and Valentines, Billy Joe Armstrong posted an untitled, unfinished track on GreenDay.com. The middle eight of that demo sounded suspiciously like the middle eight on a network song called Spike. Huh. Oh, and did I mention that the Adelaine record label is owned by Billy Joe Armstrong? So was there a Cigarettes and Valentine's album, or was it, and the whole network thing, just a big joke? No one's saying. Meanwhile, here's a sample of the network. The song is Spike. Judge for yourself. Weird studio situation number four, Green Day versus The Network, coupled with the mysterious loss of the Cigarettes and Valentines album. It's all very, very strange and suspicious. When we come back, two studio stories involving U2, and we'll set the record straight when it comes to a song that was almost deliberately erased. We'll get you the truth next. This is part six of a series entitled 100 Weird Things About New Rock. And this time we're looking at the weirdness that has come out of the studio and through the process of songwriting. Two stories about U2 now. And since we just talked about the alleged lost Green Day album, we might as well get right into the time U2 almost lost one of their biggest hits. The group was recording the Joshua Tree album with producers Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno. 
The Edge had come in with some ideas that he had put down on four-track tape in an upstairs studio at his new house. He had his guitar, a keyboard, and a drum machine. He had been trying to come up with what he called the ultimate live U2 song. Something uplifting and anthemic that would make the crowd go nuts every time they heard it. He told everyone that he had written the most amazing guitar part that he'd ever written in his life. He actually did a little dance around his home studio when it was all done. The problems began when he took it to the rest of the band. They couldn't play it. You two rehearsed and rehearsed and rehearsed, but they just couldn't get it right. The timing changes were too complex. The chord changes were just too weird. Miles and miles and miles of recording tape was wasted. Brian Eno got fed up. His thinking was that if we just erase the tape and we start from scratch, we might actually save some time recording this track. Note what I just said. Contrary to the legend, he did not attempt to destroy the song. He simply wanted to start again. But an engineer named Pat McCarthy, who was working with Eno in the studio that day, disagreed. And he actually protected the tape machine from Eno with his body. There was some physical restraint involved, which is how the legend began. Now, in the end, though, you 2 continue to work on the track, and what we hear in the Joshua Tree is actually built on the foundation of three different basic takes. There's the intro, the first two verses, and the third verse. This is a Frankenstein monster of a song. But even then, the song was too much for Eno and Lanois. So longtime U2 producer Steve Lillywhite was brought in to finish up the track, something that uh, annoyed Eno a lot. But when it was complete, it was a stunner. In fact, they chose it to open the record. So what I want you to do is listen carefully to how the song unfolds. We began with the keyboard drone, and now the Edge's guitar comes in. And then over the next few seconds, notice how the two different timings meld into a stomping 4-4 beat. Here's the transition that gave you two the most fits they've ever had in a recording studio. and the song that caused all kinds of weirdness in the studio when they were recording The Joshua Tree. Weird studio item number six also involves you 2 It's the saga of the stolen briefcase. Story begins March 22nd, 1981. U2 had just played a show at a bar called The Foghorn in Portland, Oregon. Three groupies showed up backstage. Everyone sat around talking for about half an hour, and then the girls left. After they were gone... Bonner discovered that one of them had taken his briefcase. Inside was $300 in cash, a visa in the name of Paul D. Hewson, which is Bono's real name, some tour documents, some photos, some letters from fans, some letters from Bono's wife, and some notebooks featuring 70 pages of lyrics destined for U2's second album. And now it was all gone. It had taken U2 three years to write their debut album. And now they had just a month to get enough stuff together for a second album. And this is why U2's October album seemed so half-finished. Bono had to improvise most of the lyrics in the studio. Not good. But that's not the weird part of the story. The contents of the stolen briefcase were returned to Bono 23 years later. 
In 2003, a woman from Olympia, Washington, named Danielle Rayom, contacted you two, saying that her friend Cindy Harris had found something in the attic of a house that she and her husband had purchased in Tacoma, Washington. They were rooting through the attic one day, and they found all this strange U2 stuff. Cindy told Danielle about it, and Danielle freaked out. Could this be the legendary lost U2 material? After working their way through various layers of U2 management, and after sending photographs documenting what they had found, they arranged a meeting. It took a year to schedule this meeting with Bono, but it finally happened, October the 20th, 2004. They gave him all his stuff back. The only thing that was really missing was the case itself. But everything that was inside, save for the money, was returned to Bono. When we come back, weird studio items 7 through 10. They involve four tabs of acid, Huey Lewis in the news, and a chicken. Four more studio stories before we're done with this show. You may know that New Order's Blue Monday is the biggest selling 12-inch single in the history of the universe. It changed so much in alternative music in the 1980s. What you may not know is that the whole thing was an accident. See, New Order hated doing encores. So one day they came up with the idea of just turning on drummer Stephen Morris's drum machine and letting it go while everybody walked off stage. This way they could get backstage, start drinking before anybody noticed that they were actually gone. Then, to maybe fake up the audience a bit, they got a sequencer to trigger something on Jillian Gilbert's keyboards. Then, singer Barney Sumner came up with the idea of sequencing in one of Peter Hook's bass lines. And before they knew it, New Order had the foundations of a new song, and it was all being played entirely by machines. Okay, not done yet. Legend has it that New Order took this idea into the studio one day while loaded up on LSD. They managed to get all the tracks down, but they were so wasted that once they were done, the studio engineers just sent them to the cafe across the street so they could finish mixing the song in peace. When it was finished, it was released only as an 8-minute 12-inch single. And then it changed the course of music. It forged all sorts of links between new music, rock, and dance music. And for many people, back in the 80s, this was the song that made dancing cool again. New Order, with the song that was written by mistake and recorded on acid. Let's move on to weird story number eight, which has to do with the time that Elvis Costello hired Huey Lewis and the Newest to be his punk rock backing band. And I'm dead serious about this. During the day, back in the day, Elvis was a computer operator for the Elizabeth Arden's Cosmetic Company. He had to pull data out of a gigantic room-filling IBM 360 mainframe all day, especially was printing invoices. Occasionally, he would take some sick time to record demos of the songs that he had been writing. And when he got a deal with a new indie label called Stiff, he needed a proper backing band. And here's where the story starts. A dirt-poor, straight-ahead mainstream American group called Clover had just arrived in England to seek their fame and fortune. However, they found themselves right in the middle of the British punk rock explosion. And no one, and I mean no one, wanted to hear them. All they wanted to do was earn enough money to buy some plane tickets so they could fly back home. Elvis heard about these guys, who were at the time living in a place called Headley Grange, and went to visit them. He told them that he needed a studio backing band and didn't really need a singer, so the band, Clover, told their singer to just go out and hang someplace while they rehearsed with Elvis. Then it was into the studio to record Elvis's debut record. Everything was done in six four-hour sessions. Clover was paid and then sent home. And that's when they reinvented themselves as 
Huey Lewis and the News. That banished singer was Huey Lewis. They became one of the biggest selling mainstream American rock bands of the 80s. So keep in mind as you're listening to this song that while the singer is Elvis Costello, the rest of the band went on to do songs like I Want a New Drug and The Heart of Rock and Roll. From 1977, Elvis Costello and his debut album, My Aim is True, recorded using the band that became Huey Lewis in the News. Okay, we'll get technical here for just a second. You may know that when you go into the studio, all the different parts, all the instruments, all the vocals are each recorded separately. And once everything is recorded, you need to mix all the individual parts into something that sounds really good. This mixing stage of the album process is an art. You have to balance the volume of all the little bits into a pleasing form. And anyone who mixes albums has their own way of doing things. And at least one person used a chicken. Al Jorgensen is the leader of an intense industrial group called Ministry. In 1991, he was asked to come up with the new mix of Give It Away from the Red Hot Chili Peppers. The story is that he brought a chicken into the studio and blew pot smoke in the chicken's face. So you got this woozy chicken. And then he let the chicken stagger all over the mixing console. Wherever the chicken pooped, Al made an adjustment to the mix. Now, could this story be true? So take a listen. Was this mixed with the help of a stoned, pooping chicken? The Red Hot Chili Peppers with the L. Jorgensen remix of Give It Away, which was allegedly done with the help of a stone pooping chicken on the mixing desk. Okay, one final weird studio story. How many times have you heard this particular drum break in the last 40 years? Okay, let's hear that again. This is known as the Amen break. It comes from a song called Amen Brother, which was recorded by a funky soul band called The Winstons in 1969. If you're into that scene, Amen Brother was the B-sign of a Grammy award-winning single called Color Him Father. The drummer's name is G.C. Coleman. Let me play a bit more of the song so you can see what I mean. When sampling became all the rage in the 1980s, and with the rise of all the forms of hip-hop, rave, techno, and electronica that are based on sampling, people began to scour old records for beats. Someone, somewhere, found Amen Brother. Since then, the Amen break has been sliced and diced and rearranged into a million different ways in a million different songs. Linkin Park used it in the song Faint. It's in N.W.A.'s Straight Outta Compton. Public Enemy uses it for Fight the Power. Oasis has it in some form, and do you know what I mean? And here's a great example. It's creative use of the Amen break in Firestarter from The Prodigy.
The Prodigy and Firestarter, a song rhythmically based on a six-second drum sample called the Amen Break, which appears in a song called Amen Brother from 1969. Now that you know what to listen for, you can probably think of maybe dozens of songs that feature that drum break. It's so common that it's pretty much ubiquitous in terms of popular music. But neither G.C. Coleman, the drummer, or the composer of the song, a dude named Richard L. Spencer, have received a single cent in royalties from anyone. So there you have it, 10 weird stories from the recording studio. There are more, but this gives you a flavor of what can happen when you can find creative types into a windowless room for sometimes months at a stretch. On part seven of 100 Weird Things About New Rock, we're going to get into the law. Musicians are always running afoul of the authorities, and sometimes in very, very strange ways. And again, the goal is to freak you out with the sheer weirdness of it all. Join me next time for part seven of 100 Weird Things About New Rock. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 